So many of you, maybe if you've, if you've heard me a few times, you know I'm not like a huge bumper sticker guy. And I, I totally, if you've got bumper stickers, that's okay. Um, I have nothing against bumper stickers. I, I don't know what it is for me. I just, maybe I don't want to be defined as what I'm not for or, or be defined for whatever little snippet or, or cute saying I have in my car. But to be honest, the reason I don't have like bumper stickers is because I drive like a maniac and I don't want to be that guy with the fish, you know, and like, ah, blast that Christian. By the way, that actually happened to me yesterday. I'm on the way to a, a, a memorial of all places, and the guy with the fish thing on his car, actually it was a fish, then it had a cross in the head of the fish. Like, is that overkill or what? Like, the fish isn't Christian enough anymore, so you have to have the cross in the fish, and then totally cuts us off. Like, anyway, not uh, the best disciple. I do, however, like reading bumper stickers, and I, I like when I go to different towns and different areas, I, I, you can kind of read the culture by by the bumper stickers. So yesterday we... Uh, or not yesterday, Friday, we um, were going to a memorial in Everett. And, you know, in Everett, you get uh, a different kind of bumper stick. You got a lot more American flags and, and um, you know, military ones because it's a Navy base. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, if you go to uh, to Bellingham or Seattle, you're going to see a different brand of, uh, of, of bumper sticker. Uh, down in Everett, I saw the countdown, you know, the presidential countdown things like this one's counting down till Obama's turn, term is done. Whereas it's like Bizarro Bellingham, right? Because up here it's like counting down from Bush's term. But um, anyhow, one of the stickers I see a lot in all of the Northwest, depending on whether it's Everett or Bellingham or Seattle, is peace stickers, right? In fact, we didn't even plan this, but Sophia was wearing this Mickey Mouse shirt with all these peace signs on it. It's just like part of our culture. Peace, um, free Tibet, uh, world peace, all this kind of stuff is, is kind of the buzz of our, of our culture on the left coast. Uh, and actually, peace is a big deal to a lot of people. I'm not sure I've met anyone in my life that doesn't want some sort of peace, uh, which is great because you are already probably uh, for peace. And uh, tonight our beatitude is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, it makes sense that we ought to know what peace is since we're going to be talking about it. Uh, what is peace? Honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of peace is a warm mid-morning, not early, a warm mid-morning in Europe at a cafe with just Corey. No kids, no busyness, nowhere to go. We've slept in because it's mid-morning. That's that first cup of coffee. Whew. Or I think of Lake Solitude in the Tetons. Beautiful hike before, again, before we had kids. Is there a theme here? But uh, we, hike, we hiked in, and it was so still, so beautifully clear. You could see the mountains reflecting on the lake. You could see the trout swimming in there 15 feet below. It was so beautiful. Peace, stillness, calm. Sounds nice, doesn't it? And in one sense, what I've described is an aspect of peace. The Greek word for peace, arene, generally means a state of peace or a situation in which there's no tension or conflict. But if that's what Jesus is actually talking about in this beatitude, I think we're in real trouble. And here's why. If our idea of peace is a situation or a state of being where we are not in tension or conflict, where we are undisturbed then peace is entirely personal and subjective and individualized. And if peace is defined what is, by what is peaceful to me, then it will be different than what is peaceful to you. And if I'm working to make my peace, it's probably going to come at the expense of your peace or someone else's. 
If peace is getting away, for example, well, what about those who have to cover your shift at work? Or if peace is found in escaping on a vacation, then what about the majority of the world who can't afford to get away from their situation? Is peace then only for the wealthy and the powerful and the privileged? Thankfully, Jesus' uh, vision of peace is much bigger than lack of conflict or lack of activity. Jesus was a Jew. Is that a newsflash? It should not be if you've been here a long time. Um, and one of the most important words in the Jewish language and culture was shalom. Shalom, which we often translate as peace. Shalom is an awesome word. It's a robust word. Shalom is the one word that sums up the good life. In fact, when Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming that the dawn of the kingdom of God was breaking in, he was proclaiming that shalom was breaking in. God's kingdom and shalom are in some ways synonymous. Shalom is not just lack of conflict or lack of tension or lack of activity. It actually is a positive word. It means wholeness. It means well-being. Not just wholeness or well-being for yourself, but for a community. In Jewish and Christian thinking, peace is not merely a personal attainment, something that you and I can possess alone. In Jesus' mind and in the minds of his hearers, it would have been incompatible to think of one of our people in our community having peace while somebody else doesn't. Shalom is the kind of wholeness that includes inner personal peace and outer peace with one another and with God and between nations. Scott McKnight writes, you're experiencing shalom when you've got what you need and you need what you've got. When you love the ones you're with, and are with the ones you love. When the ones you're with love you. And when you're doing good to those who are doing good to you. That's his expression of shalom. Jesus says, blessed are the shalom makers. Now, I don't know about you, but that's an extremely tall order. Uh, I have enough trouble finding the selfish, leave me alone, withdraw from the world kind of peace, let alone working for the wholeness and well-being of every person on the face of the earth. That seems darn near impossible. But this is where we need to step back a moment uh, from this particular beatitude and get a grasp of the larger picture. I'm going to take us back a few weeks. This is Matthew 4. So we're in Matthew 5, 9. This is Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when Jesus had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what Matt Chandler just read, what the prophet Isaiah wrote. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting on the land of the shadow of death, upon them light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or, the kingdom of Shalom is dawning on us. Sounds familiar, right? It's right out of the scripture reading from today. Great job, man. I know what you're probably thinking when 
Matt was reading Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Why are we reading an Advent text in the season of Lent? Or maybe you weren't thinking, maybe you weren't thinking that at all. But uh, uh, Isaiah 9, 7, or 9, 1 through 7 is this great promise of deliverance by the hand of God himself. He promised Israel that he would bring shalom. And Matthew is telling us that with Jesus' advent or his arrival on the scene, so is the fulfillment or the beginning of this fulfillment of shalom breaking into our world. Jesus is not saying, this is something we need to clarify, Jesus is not saying, okay everyone, start working for shalom so you can earn your way into the kingdom of God. Nor is Jesus saying, I need everyone to join hands, and if we work hard enough, we can bring peace on earth. Those are two things he is not saying. Jesus is saying that the arrival of the kingdom of God is fact, that it's breaking in. Shalom is breaking into our world. He's pronouncing this as good news, as something he's just telling everybody. He's like, this is the way it is. And he's declaring this good news as fact and inviting people to participate in it with him. I, I know that's a small nuance, but it, is, it makes all the difference in the world. The difference between Jesus saying, this is how it is, you can join me if you want, as opposed to, you've got to do something and work really hard at it, and then maybe it'll come. The gospel is that God is already at work. And Jesus is coming proclaiming it. He's saying, come, follow me. I'll show you how to do this thing. I'll show you how to join in what God is already doing. Remember, when we start interpreting these Beatitudes, we always need to start at the beginning. We interpret each Beatitude through the one that's come before. So Jesus does not start with blessed are the peacemakers. He starts with blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have nothing to bring to the table of, of themselves. Dale Bruner writes, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Those are the need beatitudes. That's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are mourning. Blessed are the meek and the humble. Right? Those are the, 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 the need beatitudes. So God helps those who cannot help themselves. And God also helps those who try and help others. Those are the help beatitudes. So the merciful, remember how we talked about the merciful are engaged in having mercy on people. Uh, the pure in heart and now the peacemakers, these are the help beatitudes. So God helps those who cannot help themselves and God also helps those who try to help others. But he does not in any beatitude help those who think they can help themselves. An often ungodly and antisocial conception. I think Dale Bruner nails it on the head. Let me finish his quote. This is not me. Jesus wants faith and love. Only faith justifies. Only love proves real faith. Only faith justifies and only love proves real faith. There's no necessary contradiction between the fact that God helps the helpless, that's God's free mercy, and that God helps the helpful, that's God's justice. So, the Beatitudes, this is a refresher, the Beatitudes are not primarily about what you and I can do, but what God is already doing and inviting us into. That's, folks, that's really good news. And I hope you're... <laughs> 
we're going week by week on this Beatitudes because that is such a hard concept to get. And I know, I'm saying this thing every week. Trust me, when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to take more larger chunks. But this is a concept that I'm still wrestling with, and I'm the guy preparing these every week and living in these texts, and I know it's got to be tough. But that is the difference between gospel. That's the difference between good news and merely good advice. The good news is that God is already doing these things and inviting us to join him. It's his strength that's doing it. It's his spirit that develops these qualities in us. As if that's not good enough news, there's more. We kind of miss something going on uh, that a first century hearer would be hearing with Jesus' good news because we're so far removed uh, in time and culture. Check this out. In that prophecy from Isaiah that was written hundreds of years before Jesus, there's a promise of deliverance and shalom. And the one who would bring this peace would be called the Prince of Peace. That makes sense, right? The Prince of Shalom. Now, in the first century, there was a man who was known as the peacemaker, the shalom maker, and he was known as son of a god. Do you know who this guy was? Try it. Okay, Collins, anybody know? What was his name? Yeah, Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus. He brought about what was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He united warring tribes, and he put multiple countries under his rule, under the Roman banner. The Pax Romana brought order and open trade through the vast, through vast distances, through the longest road system in the world. But it came at a great cost to the majority of the people. There's this minuscule minority of the wealthy and elite who had this Pax Romana at the cost of the majority who were reduced to slaves and heavy taxation and uh, their freedom of religion and often um, their political sovereignty was taken away. So that's one version of peace. That's the world's peace. That Caesar Augustus's Pax Romana, he was known, he called himself son of God and peacemaker. So imagine this setting in the background. Now Matthew is telling us that the real Prince of Peace is Jesus. Jesus is taking this position of peacemaker and son of God and he's turning the whole concept on its head. In the Roman view, the peacemaker and son of God was just one guy. Everybody else was below him. Jesus is saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He's democratizing this whole idea. He's saying that everybody can be a peacemaker. Everybody could be a son of God. God, the ultimate peacemaker, is in the habit of making deputies. He's inviting us to join him in his God work. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, first I want to say that peacemaking is a lifelong lifestyle. It grows in us as we trust Jesus over time, and it's going to take on new and creative directions in our life as we go on. And so there's no way that we're going to cover this in a sermon. Now, my disease is that I'm a teacher at heart, and so I want to ground us in just a few ways that we can consider this in our lives. So let's talk about being peacemakers in just three spheres of life. The personal... I want to talk about the personal peacemaking, um, peacemaking within the church, and peacemaking in the world. Okay? On the personal side, we have to begin with our own lack of shalom, with our own lack 
of wholeness. Our relationship with God is broken because of our rebellion against him. The only way we can have shalom or peace with God or anyone else is through the peacemaker who gave himself over to the forces of evil. In a world that meets violence with violence, the God of the universe put on flesh and didn't meet violence with blows, but he absorbed it. Jesus entered into the violence and he took it all on himself. There's two ways you can, you can win a fight. You can punch somebody out. Or if you're tough enough, you can take all their blows until they just fall down exhausted. And Jesus absorbed the worst that Satan had, the worst that evil had to offer. He took it on himself. And he rose from the dead victorious. Jesus took the shame that was very real, the very real pain, the very real loneliness and isolation, and he flat broke evil's back. Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus emptied himself. He didn't consider equality with God something to be utilized. He was equal with God. He just didn't use that position he didn't stand up for his position or dignity. And in relinquishing himself, he made peace between us and God and for all who placed their faith in him. Amen? That's the gospel. So one thing we learn is that peacemaking, true peacemaking, is costly. If it costs the God of the universe everything, oh man, it's costly. I also believe that this kind of peacemaking is otherworldly. It's not natural. I can't do it. I don't think it is possible without Jesus and his spirit working in us. There are a lot of great, peaceful people in the world. There are a lot of non-Christians who are much more peaceful, I think, than a lot of the Christians that I know. But I don't think that we can be peacemakers in this sense that Jesus is talking about, who consistently empty ourselves. I don't think anyone can do that without being transformed by Jesus. So when we're talking about shalom in personal relationships, we need to remember, well, probably lots of things. I'm going to narrow it down to two. One, don't expect shalom from people who don't know Jesus. Don't expect it. What do you expect? I mean, if the, there's someone in your, in your life that keeps hurting you. Um, that's not responding to your uh, advances of, of peacemaking. What, what, what do we really expect? If you know, okay, I'll, I'll use I statements. If I know my own heart, and, and I'm supposedly this pastor who like communes with Jesus and is being transformed by him, and I think I am, I think I've definitely grown over the years, but I know the ugliness in me. I, there's no way I can expect shalom from someone who doesn't know Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, don't expect too much from people who do know Jesus. Because you know yourself, right? I know, well, I, I don't know how broken I am. I'm learning how broken I am. Week by week, as other ugly things come out. Um, I'm learning how broken. Life following Jesus is a lesson in how broken we are. And it just, by the way, that just pushes us back every time to the starting point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
and it develops a spirit of mourning and a spirit of humility and a hunger and thirst for righteousness because I don't want to be that way anymore. And God develops this sense of mercy and purity of heart and peacemaking and I fail and I'm back to poor in spirit. And it's this wonderful cycle that I'm, I'm growing in Christ and you're growing in Christ, but we're never free of the umbilical. And that's how it's made to be. Every time we think we can do it without him, he reminds us, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> you need me for this. What can we do then? Well, we can be like Jesus and not always looking out for number one. Not trying to prove we're right in every single fight or trying to vindicate our name in every argument. I don't know if you identify with those things. I, those are pretty much my things that I'm putting on paper, but uh, that, that's tough. Think, think about it in terms of uh, spousal relationships, uh, relationships with friends or colleagues. That, that can be a tough one. Um, where somebody didn't quite get you right and you want to always be fighting for your name, uh, it's, not always, it's not always constructive to be putting ourselves first. It sounds really nice. It rolls off a preacher's tongue really nice to say, oh, don't put yourself number one all the time or try and vindicate your name. But let me just vocalize what we're all thinking, I think. It is gut-wrenchingly identity shatteringly which i just made that up hard hard it's a jesus thing uh, we need him to do that we are told in scripture to strive for shalom for peace with all people so far as it depends on us and to live peaceably with all one of the great hindrances to actually doing that is cheap peace it's when we've been wronged by a brother or sister in the faith or a spouse, for example, and we never say anything about it. Because we figure if we don't bring it up, we can avoid conflict, and that's counterfeit peace, right? A lot of uh, that middle child syndrome, maybe. I know some of you don't do that very well. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a middle child, so sometimes I knock heads too much. But, but uh, sometimes we think we can avoid conflict or make peace by avoiding conflict. And that's not true peace. Because remember, shalom is wholeness. Shalom is wholeness. So when a person is sinning against you, it does them no good if you don't confront it. And it certainly doesn't do you any good. If you let it go every time, you just avoid conflict and you create counterfeit peace. But peace is not the goal of life. It's not the goal of Jesus' message. Love is. Love is the goal. Peace is what results when we love. Okay? So if we're just looking for uh, avoidance of conflict, we're not necessarily loving anybody. Love is dirty and hard and gritty and sometimes stirs things up when we get involved in loving other people. Sometimes it means making a stand. Or sometimes it means dying to a part of ourselves. Actually, every time it means that. Uh, and peace is what results. But... It, Remember that peace isn't the goal. Love is the goal. So part of personal peace is being honest and real with one another. Uh, we keep lines of communication open instead of writing each other off. Jesus' Jesus's disciples asked him, Hey, how many times, Lord, should we forgive other people? Seven times, thinking they're being really holy. And that's seven's a lot. Usually three was kind of the standard. And Jesus said, Well, eh, why not 70 times 7? 
And then he tells that parable we went over a few weeks ago about the, uh, the guy who owed the king all that money. The king let him go. And his friend who owed him money, he put him in prison and um, it didn't turn out very good for him. I want to voice something that is very important here. There are some people in our lives who are predatory, who continue to have our harm as their goal or their happiness at the expense of our harm. You can confront a person and let them know they are hurting you and that's all you can do within your power. That's working as, as, hard, as much as it depends on you, make peace with all people. But sometimes in this broken world, before Jesus comes back, sometimes for safety of body and mind and emotions, we need to distance ourselves. And that's life in a fallen world. So don't hear me in, in this. This is, an, this is the goal is to love. But some people are not going to receive that. And some people are so broken and twisted, they will constantly seek to hurt you and your family. And sometimes we try and make peace as far as it depends on us. And then we, you, you just can't keep taking that. So what I'm saying in general is that Jesus knows who we really are. And he still died for us. And he still loves us. And we're called to do all we can do to make peace with others. The same is true in the second sphere I was talking about, the church. At the local congregational level, uh, we're to be peacemakers, right? We're to reflect Jesus to one another. And that means swallowing our pride. It means loving each other even when we are annoyed with each other. Um, if you've ever sat in front of me when I'm singing, you know, love me anyway. I, when you're annoyed with my off keyness. Uh, it means building each other up instead of sabotaging our unity through gossip or tearing each other down. Peacemakers encourage one another and pray for one another. So consider this. Do you spend more time maybe talking bad about somebody or stewing over somebody uh, in your mind? Do you spend more time doing that than you do praying for that person? That'd be a good little diagnostic to run in yourself. That, that's a tough one. Now, that's a congregational level. We're also to be peacemakers in the church, big C. That means not just this congregation, but all the churches in Bellingham and across the world. It means recognizing that in Scripture, Jesus calls his widely diverse group of disciples his bride. Think about that. The church where you don't agree with their theology 100%, that's Jesus' bride. Or the church with the controversial pastor, that's part of Jesus' bride. And what pains me, what makes me really mad, is to see fellow brothers and sisters pulling other churches and other people down through their comments, and it's like dragging Jesus' bride through the mud. You may have uh, been following this hyped up, I'm going to put it in air quotes, controversy about Rob Bell's new book, which, by the way, doesn't say anything new in the realm of theology or history, um, I, I read it, and we can talk about that later. That's not the point. Uh, but setting aside the validity or, or, validity or non-validity of Rob Bell's book, what bothers me is how many people, supposed brothers and sisters in Christ, attacked Bell and his stance so personally and with su such poisonous condemnation. One well-known leader in the evangelical movement publicly deemed Bell a heretic, before his book came out, by the way, and wrote him off. And friends, my point is, what does that say to the rest of the world? 
these quarrels we have over the very public and uncontextualized media like Twitter and Facebook take the bride of Christ and drag her through the mud for all the skeptics to see. And it just makes it easy out for people to see, yep, that's why I don't go to church because even the Christians can't agree on this stuff. What is shalom making in the church? If we have a problem with someone or think they've gone astray, wouldn't peacemaking look more like prayer? If you really think the pastor of a church of 15,000 souls has gone astray, wouldn't it be more constructive to pray for that person of influence or to confront them in private and try and correct them instead of writing them off in 15,000 people? It would look more like loving confrontation in the, in the private arena. It would look more like a family intervention than a public inquisition. And I'm not just talking about that issue. It goes the other way too. For all the negative comments that the um, extreme right pastors and churches get. It's about how we treat each other. You and I are part of the same bride of Christ. Guys, I know that's a tough uh, metaphor to, to grasp. Just deal with it. <laughs> deal with it. Think of your bride or your mother and uh, how, how you would want her treated with dignity. Here's a good rule of thumb. Would the person I am talking about agree with my depiction of their position? Would the person I'm talking about, so if I'm talking about somebody to Eric, pastor so-and-so, would that person, if he were there or she were there, agree with everything I'm saying? Okay, so that would be a good rule of thumb when you want to have a conversation uh, about someone. Finally, we're to be shalom makers in the world. As we surrender more and more to Jesus, we see the world through his eyes. We no longer, uh, I, I don't think, are able to be content to have our comforts and needs met while most of the world goes hungry without basic rights of dignity and justice. Right? And, and, and you, you've probably seen how that rub happens over time. We can totally desensitize ourselves to it too. Just keep entertaining ourselves or hanging out in our little circles where if I, if I find just enough Christians who have the same amount of stuff or the same lifestyle I have, then it all begins to, see, uh, to seem normal, right? But you know, we start looking at world issues like, um, like what's going on in Libya, and you, and you say, oh, this is great. You know, um, Obama's statement a few days ago said, we're, what we're doing is trying to prevent another Rwanda, another genocide. So we're coming in with some military force to, to kind of put this down before uh, Gaddafi's forces can, can just wipe all these people out. And okay, it, it's kind of one of those situations where you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't. Because if you don't, you got another Rwanda and that was on your watch. If you do, well, then you're a warmonger. Uh, but the other issue is, what's going on with Ivory Coast? Oh, they just have chocolate. They don't have oil. And so what was the last report was 800 people got killed Where's the support for Ivory Coast? And so that's why this peacemaking, I don't think we can do it unless Jesus is working that purity of heart thing into us too at the same time. That's why these Beatitudes are dependent on Christ working on us, the ones before. We don't have pure hearts when we're involved in some of these things, right? We have our agendas. We're trying to protect our agendas, our quality of life. And I think that as we 
follow Christ more and more, we begin to have eyes that are opened to the disparity in the world. When I see all the bumper sticker peace signs, I'm reminded that Jesus did not say, blessed are the peace lovers. He didn't say, blessed are the peaceful. I mean, those are admirable qualities. But he said, blessed are the peacemakers. And that means we're to be engaged oftentimes in costly ways in making peace for those who have none. Maybe a better way to say that is to join God in his peacemaking efforts um, for those who have none. We're not to be deluded into thinking we can make anything happen in this world without Christ. And it's not going to be perfect until he comes back. Our call is to see where God's working and to join him in that. See where God's working and join him in it. You know, I, I just think... As I was working on this this week, I think of Collins leaving for Thailand in a few weeks with Engineers Without Borders. Um, he's going there to help build a fish pond for an orphanage, a consistent source of protein for some kids. Seems like a little project. Um, you guys, that's, that's part of shalom making. Wholeness. Remember, shalom is wholeness. It's not just a personal interior peace. You can have a personal interior peace, but I'm telling you, if there's a four-year-old kid at this orphanage starving to death... I don't care if he feels peaceful inside. He's got to get his gut fed, right? And so part of shalom making is this uh, doing something about that quality of life issue. Collins took a risk. He's a new employee at a new company. Took a risk in asking for three weeks off. And uh, there's a lot of prayer that surrounded that. And they're like, go for it. I think it makes their company look good, actually. Um, It's this financial sacrifice to go there. So there's that. I think of Brianna Plog teaching in Columbia right now. Um, You know... It's not going to be a huge resume builder for her, for her career, if she's career-minded, you know. Um, She's definitely not as safe or as comfortable as she would be right here. I think of Frank and Jeannie and Wayne at the jail uh, working with inmates that the world has written off. Nobody would know. The average person would not know if they were doing that or not. But uh, Frank, Wayne, your prayer today, the guy that's going to life in prison, You've started something there. Who knows what, the, what God's going to do with that? That's shalom making. And I think of so many of you who serve and sponsor children and are striving to live out the axiom, have what you need and need what you have, all for the sake of those who don't have much. Making peace in the world may mean using our power and privilege and wealth to advocate for those who have no voice. To confront racism when you see it. The stuff, the stuff's still out there. And when we snicker at the jokes that come over our Facebook or in the workplace, we just ate it on. Sometimes it's standing up and being that guy or that woman in the office who doesn't put up with that crap. We confront sexism when we're, where we encounter it. We encounter, uh, stand up against nationalism in the church and nationalism in politics. There's a difference between patriotism and nationalism. Nationalism says our country's got it all together and we should impose ourselves on everyone else. See, that, that's not shalom making. That's empire building. So often we gripe uh, about people, about fellow members of the church, about politicians on this side or that side, but how much of that energy could be spent on our knees in prayer? Jesus taught us a prayer that will change the world. Not because it's magical words, but because it's praying to the one who can change the world. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And in that prayer, he teaches us, pray for that the Father's name would be hallowed or known as it really is. Pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. It is in prayer that peacemaking begins. It's in prayer that peacemaking is sustained. It's in prayer that peacemaking will come to completion because it's to the peacemaker that we pray. And I'm not talking about John Wayne's... Come on. Give me some love. Give me some love. So how do you see opportunities to be a shalom maker in your life? Has God been speaking to you this evening about a personal relationship or a world issue? Maybe you could begin um, with a prayer this week, just asking for Jesus to show you how you might take the first step. I'm going to close this in, uh, in a little prayer, but I want it, I want it just to spill over um, because we're going to move into our, our season of prayers for healing. And the way that works is, uh, um, of course, we open it up to the worship team too. You guys come forward for prayer if you like. And then they're going to play some music softly in the background. And uh, there'll be a couple of us behind these benches. And you can just take this as, as the gift of space. If you don't want to come forward, that's fine. Stay where you're at. Pray silently. Maybe mull over this message a little bit. Uh, if you'd like to come forward for, for prayer, for physical healing or for emotional healing, whatever it is, uh, we'd love to pray with you. And then, um, well, just enjoy the space and then we'll, we'll stop when it's time to stop and we'll take communion together. All right. So, Father, thank you that you are um, not only the one that has a goal of peace, that you give us a hope for peace, but you actually... You actually came and died and bought our peace. And so we thank you um, that you are the ultimate peacemaker. And we pray that you would empower us, that you would give us not only vision um, to make peace in our lives and in the world, but that you would empower us, Lord, that you would give us your heart of self-sacrifice and uh, that you'd be w- help us to be willing to, to lay down our lives uh, for the sake of others and for you. Lord, we pray that you'd meet us too in this time of of stillness and prayer. Lord, what we need more than anything is is your touch, is your presence, is your spirit. Um, So do what you're going to do, Lord. We know it's going to be good.